Today on Students Over Systems, we're celebrating Florida's school choice success story. Former Florida Governor Jeb Bush delves into why and how he advocated for education freedom as governor and shares his vision for K-12 education. Welcome to Students Over Systems, a podcast that celebrates education freedom. I'm your host, Jenny Gentles. At Students Over Systems, we talk with the creators, advocates, and beneficiaries of education freedom. Our guests empower parents with more leverage over their children's educational path. On today's episode, we're talking with Governor Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush was the 43rd governor of the state of Florida and served two terms from 1999 to 2007. Florida remains a national leader in education and is one of the only states in the nation to significantly narrow the achievement gap. We'll talk through why and how that has happened. Governor Bush has authored or co-authored three books, and he maintains his passion for improving the quality of education for students across the country by serving as chairman of the board of directors of Excel and Ed. He lives in Miami with his wife, Columba, and they have three children and five grandchildren. Governor Bush, thank you so much for joining us today. Jenny, it's a delight to be with you. Okay, so Governor Bush, you and I have been at this school choice thing for a very long time, and I'm looking forward to talking through your longtime support for school choice and what you've accomplished in Florida. I took a look at your bio, uh, even though I know uh, your work pretty well, and it says that you were the first Republican in Florida history to be reelected. During your two terms, you championed major reform of government uh, with a top priority of overhauling the state's failing education system. And under your leadership, Florida established a bold accountability system in public schools and created the most ambitious school choice programs in the nation. So it seems to me that these two things are related. You were the first Republican in Florida's history to be reelected, and you overhauled education and created this robust accountability and school choice system in the, in the state. How did, you, how did Floridians respond to your education agenda when you were governor? Well, th this is really interesting because in the here and now, um, campaigns and politics is about demonizing the other side and not much about here's what I want to do, here's why I want to do it. So, you know, I'm old enough to kind of, I don't want to go get nostalgic here, but um, I actually ran for office in an era where if you said what you were going to do, you could be rewarded. And so 1998, I ran for office with a detailed plan of what I wanted to do. Education was uh, the first and foremost, most important policy initiative in that, in that suite of reforms. I went to visit 260 schools in a year, which is hard to do if you think about it, because schools aren't open typically in the summer. So we were cranking out two a day, kind of. Uh, I learned a lot. I dehorned myself, Jenny, if you will, because in a previous campaign, I called for universal vouchers. Um, and, you know, I was considered the devil incarnate here in Florida. Mm -hmm. But I, I um, just by showing that I cared enough and that I was uh, willing to challenge, you know, I was willing to have my views challenged and to, to, to go into the lion's den, if you will, I think, um, and it became the number one issue. It created a mandate when I won. And we had a chance to implement the plan that I proposed and the legislature changed it a bit, but basically it was the 1998 campaign platform. And I think it's important for elected officials to do what they said they're going to do. First of all, say what they're going to do. 
A lot of people don't even do that anymore. And then actually connect uh, the dots to get, get something done. And that's what we did. Well, and clearly it was warmly rewarded uh, because you were, you were reelected. And um, I remember you talking back in the day about those conversations, over 200 conversations around the state. They had a real impact on you. What were some of the messages that you were, you were hearing when you were talking to folks around the state? Frustrated teachers, really frustrated parents. Um, the, what my brother eventually called the soft bigotry of low expectations. It was it was prevalent all across uh, the state. It was funny, you go into a school and if the principal knew, you know, I didn't, I always came unannounced. I didn't come with camera crews or anything. And they got a little nervous. I don't know, they just, it was not, sometimes it was a little difficult to kind of get people to warm up, but they would always show me the AP class, you know, mm -hmm. or the, the class where the tiny percentage of the kids would go that were excelling irrespective of the system. And I started asking, well, show me the, the kids that are struggling. I'd like to go to their class, you know, and you, you get insights in how they were just cast aside, whether it was middle school or high school, even elementary school. It, it started early. The kids, uh, some kids could learn, some kids can't. That was kind of the, the mantra of the time. And um, I believe that God's given the ability of every child to learn. And it's up to us, all of us in a community to organize ourselves, particularly parents, organize ourselves in a way to make sure that they do learn. And so um, a lot of my views were validated uh, and a lot of a lot of thoughts I had that were not as sensitive to the plight of people inside the system that were really, you know, struggling in a system that was not accountable. Great teachers would, you know, whisper to me, you know, keep it going. We really, you know, we need a system that's, that rewards excellence. Our kids can learn, but we need to, you know, change the system. We had a 50% graduation rate. Ginny, I'll never forget, I tell this story all the time. I was in Seminole High School. A kid was preparing to take the eighth grade level achievement test to graduate from high school. We were one of the few states that actually had a high school graduation test. It was eighth grade level, and we were so proud that we had a high school graduation test. It's eighth grade level, though. I mean, come on. So this kid, uh, couldn't answer. I was looking over his shoulder in the kind of the darkened back when they had those pong like computers. The question was baseball game starts at three. It ends at four 30. How long's the game? He couldn't answer it. I mean, God, if you don't, I mean, it was so heartbreaking and there are thousands and thousands of kids that were cast aside like this. He didn't graduate, I'm sure from high school. And I don't know where Freddie was his name. I don't know where he is in life today, but my guess is, that he missed a lot of opportunities because he didn't gain the power of knowledge and parents were pushed aside. So I learned so much and it put a human context around the nerdy policy ideas that um, a lot of people in think tank world uh, talk about, but you know, it has real life implications for people. And then the, you know, I, I got reelected for sure. Um, but our, our policies weren't like popular uh, in the sense that they were controversial. Okay? Mm -hmm. We we earned popularity by having rising student achievement, but that took four or five years. Beginning, you got to stay the course. You got to fight. You got to push back. You got to threaten a legislator who gets weak need. You have to like bring people onto the playing field, business community, parents, others. Um, it was a full time uh, job inside of uh, the government to push these this agenda to make sure it worked. 
Absolutely. Well, you might know this, but I went to Florida public schools um, from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. And somehow in the pre-internet age in 1979, my mother was able to do the research to gather information and figure out which central Florida school district was going to be the, the best fit for our family. And so she realized Domrick Elementary, Maitland Middle School, Winter Park High School, this was the best combination of schools for us. And they chose their house and purchased their house yeah. in a neighborhood accordingly. Um, that was unusual in, in those days. Um, tell us about the A to F accountability system and, and how that provides information to parents that uh, was really hard to find back, back when I was a kid. Well, a lot of parents that have resources will move to where they're, you know, to the best schools for their kids for sure. And um, thank God your parents did that. Uh, but we created a system where it was easier for parents to know whether their school, the kids' school was working by a glitter grading system that was, you know, it's pretty easy to know an A is better than a B and better than a C and an F is the worst. And then we put rewards around improvement and A schools with $100 per student going directly to the school with no bureaucracy, you know, no cut in the bureaucracy. And uh, if schools were failing, they could get a voucher back then uh, and go to a, a higher performing public school or a private school. So it was the first state in the country to have a statewide voucher program. It was very controversial. Um, we were taking money away from the public schools. All the arguments you still hear today in states like Iowa, you know, is going to pass an ESA, God willing, in the next couple of weeks. And I can, I can almost tell you exactly what the arguments against it are, because they're the same ones that existed 20 plus years ago in Florida. Um, the simple fact is that parents need to be informed about how their schools are doing, their kids, their students, you know, their kids' uh, school is doing. And we provided um, a system that was pretty easy to understand. It was 100% based on student learning, half on gains, half on how they did to the standards. And then we provided incentives so that we got more of what we wanted and less of what we didn't want. Um, life works that way, you know, you provide incentives, you provide money for the right uh, kind of outcome and you get more of it. Um, and it created rising student achievement and it gave parents powers in the failing schools. And here's the deal. This is what um, the, the opponents of parental choice in education consistently say is you're destroying public education. Florida, is one of the leaders in the country in terms of student achievement because parents are empowered to make choices. Traditional schools have gotten a heck of a lot better. That 50% graduation rate, it's at 90% today. Um, and it's not really to brag because a lot of those kids that get graduate with a piece of paper aren't really college or career ready. That's the next big challenge is to make sure that college and career readiness is, is guaranteed when you graduate from high school. But all schools get better when parents are informed about the state of their schools and the options that they have. And the more options, the better. Um, and they, it's, we're in an exciting time now in, in K-12 education across the country as more and more states are embracing this idea. But Florida was one of the leaders. And we went from, just to put it in perspective, the NAEP test is kind of the nation's report card. You know that. Mm -hmm. And we were 29th out of 31 in 1998, the year before I became governor. So we could, you know, we could whisper, thank God for Louisiana and Mississippi, but we couldn't say anything else. We were 50th out of 50 in high school graduation rate. People were saying, thank God for Florida there. And we went in five years time, we went 
on the fourth grade reading test, we went to six out of 50 states. We're a 60% free and reduced lunch student population, 60% majority minority student population. All the mythology built around some kids learning, some kids can't, has been blown up. Florida's kids, Hispanic kids do better than the California average on that test. Black kids are top five in the country. Kids with learning disability, top five. Low-income kids, I think, are number one now um, and have been consistently so. So our system has yielded improvements across the board. And now there's a pretty big constituency because, you know, we, we started this journey and then successive legislators have added choice provisions to their credit and governors have embraced the idea. So now um, Arizona, I guess, and Florida and a handful of other states have a, you know, close to majority of their kids, um, their parents choose where their kids go to school, whether it's a traditional public school, a charter school, homeschool, ESA, kind of a customized school environment or private school. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go back to the beginning of this story. You and I met back in 1999 when you were testifying before the U.S. House Budget Committee about your your plan to introduce um, the A through F accountability system and this Opportunity Scholarship Program. The Opportunity Scholarship Program, again, for students uh, who were attending schools that had received an F grade twice, these are persistently failing schools, that was small and then eventually, unfortunately, struck down by the Florida Supreme Court. Um, but while you were governor, you've mentioned the expansion of different programs, but you you oversaw some of the creation and expansion of school choice programs. So one of those was the McKay Scholarship Program. It's now been um, kind of folded into a, another program. And that was for students with disabilities. And then there was the Corporate Tax Credit Scholarship Program for low-income families. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the, the fight and the push to, to create those programs. Cause it wasn't easy getting the A through F grades and the account and the opportunity scholarship program. What, what was it like creating these, these two additional programs right on top of that? Well, the corporate tax scholarship program was, um, was passed before the opportunity scholarship program was ruled unconstitutional. So thank God it was because those kids had a chance to be converted, if you will, to the corporate tax scholarship program, because all of them were almost all, if not all were low income, you know, qualified for that program. Uh, one of the, one of the lessons learned about the corporate tax scholarship program and now um, the ESA that we have is it's really important to have good stewards of the program. And, um, Step Up for Children, based in Tampa, John Kirtley, who's a godsend to the state and now the country in many ways, uh, has built an incredible program to, to manage this uh, growing suite of programs. And so, you know, sometimes when you start these, there, there can be missteps along the way that the opponents jump on and say, you know, horrible things about, even though public schools have just as bad or worse problems. I mean, sexual predators in schools. How about that? I mean, there's, you know, the unions protect uh, bad, bad workers in, in the K-12 system, just as they do in other, other parts of, uh, you know, their, their efforts. So we, we were successful on building on the initial success. And it, I think it leads to a, an important point, which is success is never final and reform should never be complete. You, you build on your success. So the first initiation, you know, the first suite of reforms 
create an opportunity for the next suite. We ended social promotion. We created the corporate tax scholarship program. The McKay scholarship program actually didn't get the opposition, interestingly enough, because I think, and, and I'm maybe cynical about this, but I think a lot of the public schools said, thank God, you know, someone's willing to take these uh, kids that have learning disabilities or, you know, have IEPs whose parents are fiercely protective of them and will fight for them because they're vulnerable. Thank God they have another option. We don't have to deal with them anymore. We don't have to deal with the legal costs of, of defending, you know, the inability to take care of kids with special needs. So in Florida today, if you, if your IEP, you're, you know, under the Civil Rights Act of uh, in, in, in Washington, if your individual education plan is not being met, you can unilaterally take the state and local money and go to a private option. And I think 30,000 kids now take advantage of that. Um, so these programs were hard to implement because they were controversial, but they quickly gained huge support and they gained political support from parents. Mm -hmm. Another lesson learned is once you start on this journey, it's really hard. The unions get all upset. The bureaucrats threaten that everybody's saying the world's being turned upside down. But ultimately, you build a constituency. And that constituency, in the case of Florida, is a lot of low income moms and dads, a lot of uh, parents with learning disabilities that have had a chance to choose the school that they want their kid to go to. And they're not they're not going to give it up. Um, there's no going back. Um, and so whether it's a charter school or um, private schools, we have universal pre-K, which happened under my watch. And 90 percent, so 150,000 kids get a voucher to go to a half day uh, four year old program, hopefully literacy based so that they can prepare, be prepared to go to, uh, to kindergarten. And 90 percent of those parents choose a private option. So now we have this whole you know, vibrant infrastructure around our children and parents are the protectors of it. No politician would dare take it away. And the Supreme Court, thankfully, in Florida will stop intervening because we had a really good one now. Yeah, thank goodness for that. I remember being in Tallahassee during that uh, Supreme Court ruling for opportunity scholarships and you were not happy. <laughs> no one was happy. Uh, uh, so, yeah, we, we, we kind of expected it, though. And, you know, to be to be a, a secret squirrel uh, point here is that we delayed as long as we could the arguments for in front of the Supreme Court because we knew what they were going to do. Uh, the ruling was so twisted and illogical, but that's that was our expectation. So we had three or four years to show that it worked right. uh, and to protect the programs and create new programs uh, around it, none of which have been challenged, by the way, since then. So, you know, life's good. Life's good for so many families and students. Um, that McKay Scholarship Program was combined with an ESA program. And last I checked, I think it's the, com the combination is serving over 65,000 students yeah, right now with an average scholarship around $10,000. So you're, you're taking a lot of money um, and, and finding a, a school that meets your needs. And there are hundreds of schools that are participating in this program. So there are a lot of myths have been dispelled with these programs. You can't say, oh, well, there are no private schools that will serve students with stu special needs. Absolutely not true. You have years and years of, of these programs existing in Florida proving quite the opposite. And then, you know, over over time, I think uh, step up for students. That administrator of many of these programs, they they're now saying that they've served a million students 
because it adds up when you're serving 100,000 students in one program, 65,000 in another each year. And these programs are existing for many years. Many students and families are, are benefiting. Um, no thanks to the Palm Beach Post. I showed up uh, the last two years of your second term of uh, being governor, and I ran the Florida Department of Education's uh, independent education and parental choice office. So the yeah. state's school choice office. And so you guys had passed the programs, they were implemented, they were running and the media was merciless. Uh, and the legislators paid a lot of attention. I, I wonder what kind of advice you, you were saying that there's going to be pushback on the ESA fight in Iowa. What kind of advice would you give to state legislators, to governors who are advocating for these programs and protecting these programs when it comes to the the, the media storms that rise yeah. up around them? Well, it's interesting. I think the media storms are now a media drizzle mm -hmm. because they don't exist anymore. I mean, we did, you know, we did watch... I would get uh, to put in perspective as governor, I think I got 10 daily newspapers that were at my, you know, at the governor's mansion at six in the morning, 10 of them daily. And I would, you know, I would skim to see what they were covering. And a lot of times they were covering things that I didn't, you know, mistakes we made or problems we had, or editorially, they were certainly attacking uh, the accountability and parental choice programs that we had consistently. Palm Beach Post probably is the worst culprit um, but they're dead, you know, so I'm not an expert on the, the current media environment. It's probably stronger in DC, but at the state level, um, <laughs> they really don't matter anymore. Okay. So it should be easier, uh, to, to, uh, stay the course. And, and Florida is a really good example of consistent reform policies. Let just, you know, cause we, as you know, Jenny, we have, Typically, our Senate president and Senate speak, uh, the House speaker um, serve two terms. And there's a team effect because, you know, you know who the next incoming speaker is, the incoming president. And then, you know, the one that's going to come in three years, you know, the one that's coming in five years. And we have term limits. So we've had consistent reform leadership in the uh, legislature, which is really important. And other than like the last few years of Charlie Chris one term, he was a Republican, you know, he was a Jeb Bush, he called himself a Jeb Bush Republican his first two years. Then he kind of morphed into a Barack Obama. He's confused. Let's just yeah. leave it at that. But the legislature maintained these reforms. And then Governor Scott and certainly Governor DeSantis all have been big supporters. So that long-term commitment um, has proven that it works and that we have success. So you know, look, I mean, if people have every right to criticize programs uh, and you just got to stay the course, uh, it's not that you ignore the press, but they're not as important now as they once were. And they're, you know, their mouthpiece is kind of muted, don't you think? Well, I haven't heard anybody talk about the Palm Beach Post in a long time. And yeah, and now we've got Corey DeAndalus and other voices out there fighting strong uh, and and making sure that these school choice yeah. success stories are are known. I um, see, Jeff, by the way, I, I, I follow him on Twitter. The dude is tweeting a, like a hurricane uh, daily. He, he's he's going to have a neck problem. <laughs> it's like, like the, the this is the new media, right? Is do you have people that, that use the social media platforms to really advance their cause. And um, it makes a difference. It's, it's important to get, get the word out and he does a great job.
Yeah, so thankful for for you and all that you did to to launch a lot of these programs, and so thankful for for Corey to for defending and uh, ensuring that they're. Uh, expanded. I, I titled this episode Opportunity Scholarships, which we've talked about, and BHAG. So as we wrap up, can you um, tell folks kind of what, what BHAGs were and, and how that was a, a driving force while you were governor? Yeah, this was a, um, a Jim Collins term. Um, the uh, BHAG is a big, hairy, audacious goal. And I think in public life, when you have a chance to serve, you shouldn't be about cutting ribbons and checking boxes, you should be about big goals and then create strategies around implementing those goals and stick with it. Dogged determination matters because look, in education, think about it. You have, when we started, we had 67 superintendents. Every one of them was likely to be opposed. Was a, They were opposed to our uh, the A plus plan. We had the teachers union, they were opposed to it. The, the state board, the Department of Education, Jenny, at the beginning was opposed to our initiatives. The legislature was kind of concerned about it. And so we asked all these entities to implement a bold idea and to convert an idea into having rising student achievement and having allowing kids to live purposeful lives at the end of this journey, you have to stick with it. And so BHAGs are about creating strategies over the long haul. You know, we eliminate social promotion in third grade. A lot of, there's probably 15 states that claim they've done it, uh, but yet there's no one's held back. There's Mack truck wide, you know, loopholes. We had uh, the threat was we had, we would have 30% of our third graders held back in the first year of implementation. So what did we do? Well, a BHAG would require you to implement faithfully this idea so we created reading coaches in every elementary school. We taught teachers how to teach reading because they don't know. We eliminated the um, whole language uh, efforts, which I think are insidious and, and dangerous. Still, to ex They still exist today, and we, we embraced the science of reading. We gave certificates for teachers that had, you know, got extra pay for um, having a reading certificate. We held kids back. Um, but we created all sorts of other ways to make to deal with remediation. And we went from a third of our kids as below basic readers to, you know, and 13% were held back the first year to now. Um, the reason why we lead the nation in this fourth grade NAEP test is we created a policy that over three or four years did not push, you know, kids, leave kids behind. So if you're a low-income kid in Florida, you have a much better chance of be living a successful life because you're a grade-level reader by the end of third grade. They don't do that in California. They don't do that in New Jersey. They don't do that in New York. They don't do that in many places, and they spend double the amount of money that we spend. So where is it a better place to grow up? A state that is committed to BHAGs or a state that is committed to protecting the adults in the system? I'll leave it at that. Well, as a Floridian, I definitely say that Florida is the better place to to grow up. And um, as a supporter of, of the BHAGs that you implemented and a, a witness to that process, definitely um, my votes for, for Florida. Governor Bush, thank you so much for talking with us today. I appreciate all that you've shared with us. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks for all you do. Well, we hope that listeners found today's conversation informative and encouraging. And if you enjoyed this episode of Students Over Systems, please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to share this episode with your friends. 
Uh, to learn more about the work of Independent Women's Forum's Education Freedom Center, of which I'm the director, please visit iwf.org EFC. Thank you for listening to Students Over Systems. Until next time, keep prioritizing students over systems.